If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 13. And we're going to read from, this is our key passage this morning as we start a new series. Matthew 13, 44 to 45. The kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus speaking, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then, his, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he'd found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So we're starting a new series for the next three weeks. We had a wonderful series over the summer. You may have been away all summer and missed it, but I think it's one of the best series we've ever done, Stranger Things. And it's on the podcast and online, and you can get it in the app. Um, and this new series is about, um, with the reasons for it, we're looking at the kingdom of God. And we're celebrating our church being 25 and a half years old. And um, the kingdom of God and what God has done in our Vineyard Church movement is very important to us. Um, Our church has been very involved, not our church here specifically, but our church movement, Vineyard, with the renewal of worship and ministry around the church worldwide. And you may not know that. And it's not that we are special, it's just God has different ways of doing different things with different church movements. So we are celebrating our church being 25 and a half years old, celebrating that we're a vineyard church, and thought it would be wonderful to come back and remember and remind ourselves of what God's done with us as a church movement. It's also a reminder of why we were planted as a church and what we hold dear, our DNA that we value as a church. And uh, as we have come out of COVID with... um, so many uh, new people, and if you're new to our church, we love having you here and welcome. Um, and and uh, so something to share with you about who we are and what we do as we remember that together. But there's also something else about this. I mean, our times are turbulent, aren't they? Was anyone hoping that at the end of COVID things would be back to normal? There is a normal for us, and it's called the kingdom of God. And another reason for us to look at this is not just to celebrate 25 years and what God's done through our church movement. But if you are finding any disjunction, distraction, distress, concerns about life and the world, this is the best we have for you. From scripture and understanding that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus turned up 2,000 years ago to some of the poorest people in the world under Roman oppression, persecution, in a way of life that we couldn't imagine. Never mind energy hikes, taxation issues that were crippling. And he said to them, "The, the answer is this, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what we're unpacking the next few weeks. Um, Jesus, alive, risen, is doing what he started in the New Testament. His gifts, his spirit, his power are available now. And we might begin with this question. How much of that are you experiencing in your life? Why don't we see more of that? That's the big question as we come into this talk today. That's what we're going to look at. And the title for today is called Doing the Stuff. It's a phrase that we got from our founder, John Wimber. I want to read another passage to you, Matthew 10, verses 7 to 8. And this is Jesus to the first disciples. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. The kingdom is at hand. And we're going to listen to a short clip from John Wimber, the founder of our church movement, about the kingdom. As I read the New Testament, I fell in love with Jesus. Didn't you? 
I liked him. I liked what he was like. I liked the things he did. I liked the things he said. Didn't you like those things? I thought that stuff was hot. I liked it when he multiplied the bread. Did you like that one? Huh? How about it? Did you like that? And the fishes, you know, the sardines. I always picture sardines. I like that stuff. I like all that stuff, you know? I liked it when he went by the fig tree and said, hmm, you know? <laughs> and it died. Can you picture him doing that? I like all that stuff. I like it. I remember last night, come forth. That's a biggie, you know? I mean, that's hot. There are not many guys doing that come forth thing, you know, telling anybody to come up from the dead. I liked all that stuff. And when I became a Christian, I thought that's what I was going to do. I spent several weeks reading the New Testament and talking with these people, and I thought, this is great. You know, I'm going to join up. I want to do this stuff. And so I remember the frustration of attending church the first few times. You know what I thought they did at church? Now, this is how stupid I was. I thought you, that people gathered at the church, had a good time together, sort of divvied up the land, and everybody went out and healed a few, and cast out a few demons, and won a few people to Christ before lunch. And so the first few times I went to church, I went prepared with the idea that we're going to, you know, ha, I'm going to take Anaheim. I want to go to Anaheim, you know, the deepest, darkest pagan Anaheim over there by Disneyland. That's where I want to go because that's where I was raised. And when they didn't do it, I was disappointed. And I remember one day asking a guy about it. I said, well, when do we go out and do it? He said, what? I said, when do we go out and do it? He says, oh, you don't have to do it. You just have to believe it was done once. Now that's pathetic, isn't it? I found out over the next year or two that we cried about it, we sang about it, we preached about it, we prayed over it, we gave to it, but we never did it. We never got to go do the things that Jesus did. And I grew disillusioned in the process. Now, you know, when I worked for the devil, he let me do his stuff. <laughs> Did he let you do his stuff? He let me do his stuff. But when I came to work for Jesus, they didn't want to let me do his stuff. And I, to tell you the truth, I joined up to do the stuff. Did you? You see, it's doing the stuff that's going to change the world. It's not knowing it was done once. It's not knowing that it's important. It's doing it that's going to change the world. Somewhere, someplace, somebody's got to start believing this book and acting on it. And I figure it might as well be us. We're qualified. We can read and write, most of us, and we understand that it can be done. Doing the stuff. Did that stir you up? Stirs me up after more than 35 years of hearing it. First time I heard it when I came into the vineyard. So are we doing the stuff? If the kingdom is at hand, if Jesus has, Jesus has risen and he's alive by his spirit, are we doing the stuff? Are we hearing from him, praying, seeing miracles, sharing Christ with others, giving ourselves away and seeing our world changed? And if not, why aren't we?
Well, let's start with, we're going to do three things to unpack why that might be. First one is fear. Now, in our vineyard movement, our founder, John Wimber, used to use a phrase. There's lots of Wimberisms, as we call them, and this is one of my favorites. Faith is spelt. The rest of you are like, what the heck was that? If you're new to our church, you think your faith is spelled F-A-I-T-H, yeah? But faith is spelt R-I-S-K, risk. Faith is many things, but faith is risk. And it's one of the places to start. It's why we don't experience the kingdom, because we won't take the risks of faith of the kingdom. Do you know, I think out of that whole clip with John Wimber, and I've heard it many times, and I heard him say it many times at many things, I think the one that stands out to me was I love the bit when he says, when I work for the devil, he let me do his stuff. Let me do, let, let me do his stuff. We get to do the Jesus stuff. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Um, let's read Luke 12, verses 29 to 34. Now this is uh, Jesus again. Don't set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Now listen to this, verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to, the poor, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Faith is spelt R-I-S-K. But we are intrinsically as human beings for lots of reasons, but fundamentally we understand from Scripture because of our fallenness, our separation since Adam and Eve from God is to hide away and to protect ourselves to withdraw, to say, maybe tomorrow, to put our la-la ears in. God, I can't hear you. Anyone good at doing that? La-la-la, I can't hear what God's saying to me. Risk, hide away, and fear. There's a wonderful book by Susan Jeffers called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Have any of you heard of that book? Very, very famous book, sold millions of copies. Um, a psychologist, and she looked at fear and growth. It's not, not a Christian book, but said that growth is on the other side of fear. Every good thing that comes into someone's life is on the other side of taking a risk. And that actually, psychologically, if we protect ourselves, what happens is we get less and less and less and less and less in our lives. And there's a quite scary chapter in the book where she says, homework for tomorrow, plan to do something outside your comfort zone. Call the person you've been scared to call. Ask for a pay rise bigger than you are confident enough to ask for. Stuff like that. And she says, see what happens. And she also talks about how many people, and some of you will know this because this has happened to you personally, you've seen it with friends. It's only when catastrophe happens to them that they face things in their life that they always feared and they find that they survive them and they grow. A lot of you are nodding. And Jesus invites us to break through the fear barrier, not to wait till we're forced to, to live on the other side of it. Faith is activated in the space. Every time, and I love, this, I love it in this book because it's like I'm hearing the, the talk for today, I was reading it this week. That moment 
when something comes into your life on which on the other side could be something better for you and you're terrified, is the threshold of growth. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. We access it through faith, and faith is spelled R-I-S-K. I want to tell you a story. I think I might have shared this last year. Lots of you will have missed it if I did, and sorry if I'm repeating it. Um, but I'd spent a period of time last year praying more than I'd ever prayed and listening to the Lord. And, and I was away somewhere. I was actually out the country. I was in Washington, D.C., um, speak, managed to es- escape the U.K. Um, with all things COVID. And I was going to get my beard trimmed. Do you like my beard, by the way? <laughs> it's taken me 53 years to be able to get this. Um, I'll take anything with no hair. And I am, um, you know, thinking, oh, Google local barbers. You know, find a five-star barber and go get my beard trimmed. It needed trimming. And I just felt, I'd been in it, I actually was thinking of this after prayer, and I felt the Lord say, I want you to choose carefully where you go. I was like, what, for a beard? Really, Lord? And I thought, okay. So I looked at a whole list of local barbers, and I went, Holy Spirit, where do you want me to go? And he went, that one. I went, this is weird. So I went to that barber's. And I got there, and I walked in the door, and I'm looking around thinking, why am I here? Obviously not for a beard trim. I don't think the Lord was sending me to the barber's (laughs) because he wanted me to get the best beard trim in the world. And in fact, the beard trim I got was okay, but it wasn't the best. And I went... I mean, there's not much risk at this point, is there? No, no one knows what's happening. I just might end up with a bad bed trim. So I get there, and I'm like, okay, Lord, this is strange. And I walk in, and everyone's black, <clears throat> and there's a Jamaican flag on the wall. And they sit me down, and I'm, I'm the only white guy in the room, and they come over, and then they find out I'm a pastor, and I'm from England, and they're saying, hey, it's a pastor from England. And they're all talking, going, we don't get many pastors in here. Well, white, we don't get many white pastors, they, they clarify. And I'm sitting there, and the guy's doing my beard, and he starts, because I'm a pastor, people start to tell you your life. He tells me about his divorce, he tells me about his remarriage, he tells me about his sex life. I'm like, this is getting very awkward at the minute. (laughs) He's asking my advice about his family and his girlfriend and stuff, and I'm like, Lord, is this why I'm here? And I felt the Lord say, no. (laughs) I'm like, oh, okay. Lord, why am I here? And I'm sitting, this guy, my beard, and I'm just praying, going, Lord. And I felt the Lord say this to me. He says, Jason, you've been learning to listen to me. Listen. So, I went to the place I go in my prayer. I'm in this barber's chair, and I went, Holy Spirit. And then I felt the Lord say to me, as best as I know how, he said, I have a message for you to give to someone here. I'm like, okay. Is it this guy? No. Okay. Who is it? Don't know. Finish the thing, get up out of my chair. There's another young guy there who's a, who's a black guy who's training to be a pastor. And everyone goes, hey, talk to Pastor Andrew. And we talk with him. And I go, Lord, is it for him? And I felt the Holy Spirit say, not him. And I'm like, I'm getting dangerously close to paying and walking out the door. <laughs> and I still haven't given a message to anyone. And the novelty of being the white pastor from England is going to run out soon. And then there's an old lady at the reception area. Turns out she's the owner of the place from, from Jamaica. And she's, she's sitting there and listening to everything. And, um, and this is when it got scary. And I felt the Lord say, my message is for her. 
And I'm like, Lord, could you tell me what it is? You know, Lord, if you tell me what the message is, then I'll know it's worth giving. <laughs> this is where the faith and the risk kick in, because I could look a real idiot here. And the Lord says, no, I want you to tell her that you have a message for her. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> You'd think I'd be good at this as a pastor. And it's a bunch of people I'm never going to see again, but inside my heart's going, boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, okay, weird Englishman, here we go. So I walked up to her, and then I felt the Holy Spirit. And I, then I felt like God gave me the words. I said, you're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? She went, I am. Now, they know I'm a pastor, so hopefully they know I'm a follower of Jesus. But you never know. And I said, I think God brought me here today because he has something he wants me to share for you. And tears come into her face. And then she, she reaches down and she pulls out, she's been reading, and what she pulls out is she's got a Bible in front of her that you couldn't see on a tray under her desk. And there's a, big, there's a plastic screen because of COVID. Pulls it out. And I look over and I can see Psalm 73. It's my favorite psalm. I said, my flesh and my heart may fail. And she said, but God is my strength and my portion forever. And then the Lord said, now tell her. I'm like, tell her what? <laughs> I said, I think God's brought me from England for many things, but he has a message for you today. Can I tell you it? And in my head, I'm going, God, please, quick. Now would be... <laughs> Now, any moment. And she said, yes. And then straight away, it, the word. In, in that moment, right up to that moment, the Holy Spirit stepped in and spoke to me. And I said, the Lord wants you to know you're very worried about someone. And he has seen and heard your prayers. And that may sound trite and simple, but I've come from the other side of the world. And God sent me here in a way that you couldn't possibly imagine because he sees you and knows you. I am a token of God seeing and knowing your prayers. But she starts weeping. And she says, I'm sitting here reading Psalm 72, praying for my son who's just gone to prison. And she said, I literally just prayed, God, do you hear my prayers? Isn't that cool? Now, I could have picked a Yelp or Google review and gone somewhere else. But sometimes it doesn't take much to start listening and take a risk. Now, I wouldn't swap that. Now, the danger is I can think, I've done that. I'm never doing that again. And then the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit says, I like that with you, Jason. We should do more of this. I'm like, oh, no. I'm an introvert, Holy Spirit. Every time I get my beard cut, I get worried now. Um, facing our fears and taking risks brings miracles. That, and I, that I got the she said gave me an email and spoke to me you imagine that she gets to go home and say I'm reading Psalm 72 and saying God do you hear me my son's gone to prison and some random Englishman from London walks into my store and says God has heard your prayer and about someone that you're praying for and caring for those moments are at hand for all of us every day right now here in this room In Scripture, Jesus gives us permission to do the stuff. Did you know that? Some Christians want to say the Bible says we can't do that anymore. 
It's one of the things we love about Wimber. Jesus didn't say, this is finished. He said, I'm going, so you can do this. Carry on doing it until when? Until what happens? Until he comes back. And keep doing it. Keep being me to everybody. Because I'm going to send the Spirit so that more than just the 12, you can do this until I return. Keep doing it. We're given permission. We're also told in Scripture to be obedient. Do this. Jesus, in the passage we read here often, he doesn't say, and if you feel like it, do it. What does he say to the disciples? Go, imperatives. Go and do. Do this. If you are my disciples, you will do greater things than this. We're given permission. We're given direction. And yet we still don't. Why is that? Because I think there's something even deeper, and it's in this passage. In, in Luke 12, in the middle of it, verse 32, where Jesus says, don't fear, you'll notice it's sandwiched between two things that deal with what generates our fear and our human nature and makes us stop doing and taking risks for the kingdom. Verse 32, Jesus says, do not fear, your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. But do you notice the bit before? Don't set your heart on what you'll eat or drink and don't worry about it for the pagan world does all such things. And then after verse 32, sell your possessions and give to the poor, provide yourselves with purses that won't wear out. And I think in summary what Jesus shows us in this verse is two things. He says, if you want the kingdom, don't live the way the world does. The world is shorthand for everything other than the kingdom. Don't do that. Don't live for that. And then the other side of fear is, and don't give yourself the same way the world does. And what the world does, not to be disparaging, says, take care of yourself and give with what you've got left over. And Jesus says, that's the problem with the world. Jesus says, live for me and give yourself away for me and you will have more than you could ever have imagined. And Jesus finishes that passage. And he, this lovely, you know, sometimes the things Jesus says are in parables and other times they're straightforward. And Jesus brings it right down to the most simple of things. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Jesus is like, it's really simple to know what you're living for and giving yourself for, what you have faith for, what you're taking risks for. It's what you love here. This decides everything, what we desire. And so one of the reasons that we won't take risks is because we love the wrong things. And I think underneath that, I've known this in my own life and as a pastor for all these years, when I spend time with people who are wanting to experience more of God is often the deepest fear is that God does not have the best life for me. That if I was to really surrender myself to him, and discover him and encounter him and say yes to him, I would have less, not more. That's often what's under the risk, isn't it? I don't want to open my mouth and talk to a complete stranger because then I'll have less. I'll look like an idiot, yeah? I don't want to give my time to something because I haven't got enough. It's always about lack and fear of the risk. There'll be less, I'll be less. And brothers and sisters, right now, the freedom that we've always wanted, the identity and the purpose, is at hand. And in the face of everything going on, whatever happens, 
with Vladimir Putin or our energy costs. So, let's take another step. Two of three. I'm going to put up on the screen John 6. This is about power and presence. The difference between power and presence. Here's a quote from John Wimber. We don't seek God's power. We seek his presence. His power and everything else we need is always found in his presence. Let's read John 6. And then um, it's a long passage, so I'll clip some verses from here. Um, so the background to this passage is Jesus has fed the 5,000 at the beginning of John 6. Amazing miracle. And then he goes away to pray, and he does a bit of walking on water. And the disciples are running around like headless chickens, like, let's do this again. And everybody else wants Jesus. They're like, fantastic, free food. <laughs> Which is really, this is the paraphrase, right? These are starving poor people. More. And, they come, and then they find Jesus eventually. And it's like, do it again, do it again. And Jesus is like, no. I did that to teach you something. That the answer to your problems in life is not me to make bread for you every day and sardines. And he says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Put your life around me and it will order every other problem and everything that's going on in your life. And people freak out at this point like, whoa. No, 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 no. And we see Jesus saying some things here. Then Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and you still do not believe. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Well, by the way, it's like buried away in the Greek. Jesus says, if that offends you, listen to what I'm about to say next. Jesus didn't have any problem offending people that were trying to follow him, and he has no problem offending us still today. If we've never been offended by Jesus, we've probably never met him. Probably never really met him. Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 people. Sometimes people say, and I've, I've said it and I've heard other friends say it, oh, if I saw more miracles, I'd believe in God more. There are lots of people who saw Lazarus raised from the dead and believed in Jesus less. And if our only relationship with God is to get things, one of the signs of that is we have less of him, not more. God's miraculous provision does not always lead to faith that is risk. And we know in John, a whole bunch of the disciples walk away, stop following him, and then he turns around to the 12. Try to picture this. I mean, Jesus done, fed the 5,000. There's this huge crowd, and he's offending people, and a whole bunch of disciples, other disciples, just walk away, and he turns around to the 12, and he goes, and you? I think at this point, Jesus is ready to say, and if you walk away, I'm just going to start again. I'll find another 12. When we get to heaven, I want to ask Jesus, because we don't know. I wonder if he went recruiting beforehand, and the others went, yeah, no thanks. Maybe. Jesus is like, and you? You as well? 
Is this too hard for you to believe that I am life itself? Do you want to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And a bunch of unqualified people, including some fishermen, say, I don't know what this means or how it's going to work out, but you are it. You are life. And Jesus says, finally, you're starting to get it. So one of the other reasons that we digging into this issue of desire and what we love is we want God's power but not his presence. Let me read that quote from John Wimber again. We do not seek God's power, we seek his presence. His power and everything else we need is always found in his presence. And some of you probably heard other preachers and teachers you know, say this. You may have thought it yourself. Seek God's presence, you will always get his power. Always. To encounter God, to love him and to know him, means he will be active in your life. Automatic. But if the only time we seek God is to get his power, to get something from him, to get him to do something. I was trying to think about this. Um, some of you are parents. Do you have children that you never hear from unless they need something? You're like, what do you want? Money? <laughs> My children would never do that. <laughs> you know, Daddy... Like, there's a little inflection. It's like, what do you want? My kids are good, actually. I have a son that I never hear from because he's a boy. Um, I said to him the other day, I said, do you ever think about me? Yes. Do you ever think what a great dad I am and you love me and miss me? Yes. I said, in that moment, why don't you send me a message? <laughs> and he's like, why would I do that? <laughs> he's lovely. Um, anyway. And I was thinking about this power and presence. You see, my kids could never talk to me other than message me and say, I need some money. I need help. And do that for 20 years. What kind of relationship will we end up with? The one where my friends talk to me and they say, how are things your kids go? I don't know. The only time I ever hear from them is when they want something. It'd be a pretty sad relationship, wouldn't it? And we end up like that with God. Some, you know, in, the, in the Godhead. How's Jason? I don't know. I only ever hear when he wants something. That's a shame. Oh, I'd really like to be present in his life. You see, some of you are parents, and you are good parents, and you're present to your children. The power of who you are flows into your children's life through presence. You know that. See, when, when my kids sit down with me, and we spend time together, the full munificence of my presence overflows into their life with provision and resources. <laughs> I said that out loud, didn't I? But you see, they get to be comforted. And not just the money in a bank account. They get to be reassured. They get me to say to them, it's going to be okay. They even get me to pray with them and have the Holy Spirit come into their life. They even get me to speak prophetic words to them. They even get to see miracles flow. I'd rather be that kind of dad with my children than a cosmic slot machine father. How much more? Jesus says this, how much more does your heavenly Father long for you to be in his presence and us experience the inheritance that he has for us? He can't help himself. It just flows from him. One of the best things to do, I'm convinced of this, I've experienced it myself, 
If the only time we talk to God is to get something, just stop talking to him, to ask him for things. And instead, spend that time and just be with him. Because Jesus tells us, he knows the, number, the hair on our head, not difficult for me, I always say that. More than the stars in the sky, the sand on the beach. He's like, oh, you're here. Oh, Archangel Gabriel. Remember Lorraine's talk from a few weeks ago? Get on that. Do this. Why? Oh, I'm with my son and my daughter. Come on, kingdom. And what have we said? Nothing. We've just been with him. But we often just want his power and not his presence. Do you remember my Pentecost talk from a couple of weeks ago? Was it two or three weeks ago? Those of you here talking about fire and tongues of fire in the Stranger Things series. Some of us, when it comes to God, we want a fireplace that we can switch on and off when we want it to get some heat when we want it. And we looked at how the Holy Spirit is a wildfire. He wants to set us on fire. One of the reasons we don't experience the Holy Spirit is we want it when we want it. And the Holy Spirit goes, doesn't work like that. I want to set you on fire and set the world on fire. We want control, again, about risk. We want help and support for a way of life. Um, Martin Luther, in the Reformation, said that one of the problems with Christians is they want to go straight to Easter Sunday without Good Friday. Has that changed? We want the goodies of the resurrection, but the way to Easter Sunday is through Good Friday. Jesus says, pick up your get out of jail free card and go straight to Easter Sunday. No, Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Take risks. Practice death. Something in me in that shop had to die. My embarrassment. Death. One of the ways you know that God is at work in your life is he puts something to death to bring the resurrection of Jesus. That's why it's a risk. And isn't there an irony? I, I keep say this brothers and sisters some of us are hoping who's hoping that when they die they're going to spend an eternity in eternal life is anyone hoping for that are you hoping for that why spend all of our lives never taking risks to experience the resurrection and then hope that when we breathe our last that something happens that we've never experienced in this life it's one of the things i remember john wimber talking about early on he's saying i go to bed as a christian and wake up as a non-christian every day and i have to die again every day and he was saying, I want to die again and again and again and again so that when I finally die, and he did finally die, that eternity is not, a, oh, I hope it all works out after all of that. But it's just like, here I come. The biggest risk of all. And faith. I've given my life to Jesus. And Jesus says to the disciples, there's so many other passages that are coming to mind here. You know, that later on in, um, in, in another one of the Gospels, uh, the, the disciples are like, but we've given up everything for you. And Jesus says, yes, you have. And you're going to get more than you could ever imagine in this life and the next. He's a wonderful God. He is the lifestyle, not support for a way of life. He has given us promises to support us. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus was my life, how would you know? I remember sitting in a seminar with Dallas Willard. He died a few years ago. He, wrote, he was a philosopher, um, very well-known academic, but he wrote lots of books on spiritual formation. He's got a book called The Divine Conspiracy, and I heard him when I was in my early 30s. And he said, it's really hard to say what a passionate follower of Jesus is, but you know it when you see it. He was doing something on epistemology and knowledge and atonement and other stuff, very clever, but just that little phrase, he goes, you know a passionate follower of Jesus. 
And you might go, well, it's this and it's this and it's this, but you know when you know someone who isn't a passionate follower of Jesus, some of you are nodding your head. If I was a devoted follower of Jesus, how would you know? How would you know? Some of you are thinking, should I shout something out? How would you know? Well, he'd be my bread. He'd be the source of my life and what I live for. He would be the water and the air that I breathe. I would die for him. And in fact, as we saw in Luke 12, more than dying for Jesus, I would live for him. Some of us brothers and sisters don't get to, never mind dying for Jesus, we, we haven't discovered living for Jesus. To live for him. Whether we live or die, Paul says, for him is gain. And I think what it means is that he is what I do to relax. He is what I do to find joy, meaning, and adventure. He is the relaxation. He is the joy. He is the meaning. He is the adventure. He is the purpose. That's how you'd know if I was passionately following him. And I also think he is what I would do when I was tired and when I was lonely and when I was depressed and when I was beside myself in anguish and grief. He would be there. He would be beside me, with me. I would be seeking him, following him in my overwhelm. I told you about a time last year that was very painful and very difficult and I was doing some spiritual exercises and meditations in the Gospels and got to the passage where Jesus is in the tomb and there's a thing called the Long Sabbath. And with a spiritual director each week, you don't move on until you feel... The idea is it's, it's the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And in the exercises, you have to wait prayerfully before the Lord. And I felt like the Lord said to me, I've, I'd never really known God as my Father and discovered him wonderfully last year. And I felt the Father, it was like I was a little boy from all the trauma I had as a child, and I discovered that my Heavenly Father, and he held my hand, and he said, we're going to stay here, and we're going to wait until I tell the tomb to open. And the exercise is a week, and then I did two weeks, and three weeks, and four weeks, and five weeks, and six weeks, and about six weeks, called the longest Sabbath. And in my prayers, I waited every morning in the garden with the Father, and imagined myself with my Heavenly Father. And he was a bit like Aslan, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it was really uncomfortable. I'm like, Lord, I want you to open the tomb and get on with it. And he's like, no, you need to wait. You need to wait. And I was waiting with him through one of the hardest times of my life. And then suddenly, in my mind's eye, in my prayer imagination, after spending weeks and mornings in praying, I felt like, in the spirit, the Lord showed me the tomb rolled open and Jesus starts to walk out. And as he walked out, he shouted at me, but not shouting at me. And do you know the first thing he said? He bellowed. You know like when he bellows at Lazarus? In the Greek it says Jesus bellowed. And he was bellowing at my, I know it's my soul. I was so fearful of what was going on in my life. And he said, do not be afraid. <sighs> Wasn't telling me off. This was the Jesus that spoke to the storm and said, be still. And he spoke to the storm in my life and said, do not be afraid. And then as he came out the tomb, 
I saw him. And he put his head to one side with a cheeky smile on his face and he went, follow me. Because he knew the answer was, I'll follow you anywhere. I didn't even answer. And then that was the end of the Sabbath and I moved off with the Lord. And I don't know how to tell you what it is like to encounter Jesus without telling you my encounters. Not so that you copy them, not so that you seek them. But that he is alive, he is risen. He is closer, he said. He is closer than the air we breathe. To discover him, live for him, open our lives to him. He that is in us is greater. He that is in us is greater than what? He is greater than Vladimir Putin. He is greater than any energy company. He is greater than any politician and conservative election process. He is greater than your boss. He is greater than your anxieties and your fears. He that is in us. How do we know that's true? Because he rose from the dead. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And if we spend and give our lives for him, instead of conserving and protecting, and this is at the root of fear, how do we know when we're living out of fear? Because we start to conserve. We start to protect. We start to withdraw. I don't have enough. I'm not enough. It's what Adam and Eve immediately did to hide. One of the ways to know if what you're doing is getting you closer to the Lord is you get closer to the Lord. Did you understand that? It's not rocket science. One of the ways to know that the way we're engaging with life is getting us closer to the Lord is that it gets us closer to the Lord. You know, if, again, let's pick my, pick, my, I'll pick my wife. How does my wife know that she's getting closer to me? Because she feels closer to me. That's it. Doesn't need a flow chart or an Excel spreadsheet. She'll say to her friends, Jason and I are really close to one another at the minute. Prove it to me. It doesn't work like that. It's about relationship. Now in verse 63 in John, this is in verse 63 here, Jesus says, the spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. Oh, I love this from the Lord. Jesus says, if you're tired, come and sit with me instead of Netflix. See what happens. But Lord, the new Game of Thrones TV series is on. Do you know, the other day I've been overwhelmed with a lot of things at the minute. There's a lot of things going on and trying to give my time to stuff. And finding my prayer time being squashed. And I've been enjoying long prayer times with the Lord. And, um, and, and I sat down on the night off to watch a TV program. The Lord said, do you need to watch that? And I sat there and thought, Lord, would it matter if I never watched one more TV program for the rest of my life? If that's what it took to have more of you, cool. I don't need TV. I need Jesus more than I need the TV. I need Jesus more than I need my holidays. I need Jesus more than air and water and the blood that goes through my veins. Do you notice also in the passage, Jesus said in Luke 12, Jesus says, the Heavenly Father knows, he says, you need those things. He doesn't say he, that God doesn't, God doesn't think we need those things. He knows we need friends. He knows we need bread. He knows we need water. He knows we need a job. He knows we need a roof over our heads. Our Heavenly Father knows we need those things. But Jesus says, seek me and the Father, and all that will be taken care of for you. 
all of it. How do I think that works? I think what it means is take some annual leave and give it away for the kingdom. Turn your evenings into his evenings for a while. Your time off, your hobbies, your passions. And that's what Peter discovered in John 6. You have the words of eternal life. Last one, third one. I need to finish, don't I? Where is your treasure? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Got carried away, haven't I? Do you want to watch a John Wimber clip? Get the band back. Come on, band. Band, back you come. And we'll put this John Wimber clip on. You're the treasure. You're the treasure. You're his treasure. You're his pleasure. It's you he's after. He paid it all to have a relationship with you. Now the second part of of the parable, the pearl of great price, deals with a a commercial kind of perspective. First of all, you, you, you need to note that the pearl is of such value, such exquisite uh, dimensions, that it's worth all the assets, not of an individual, not of a, of a layman, not of a, uh, of a purchaser, but of a person who is a pearl merchant. Now understand, there's a difference between a pearl merchant buying a pearl and you and I buying a pearl. First of all, pearl merchants are always looking at pearls. They're constantly looking at pearls. They have an eye for pearls. That, they see things in pearls that we, we, we can't see even when they educate us. Look at the gray, look at this, look at that, look at the shape, look at this. They, they can see things that we can't see. So they're used to examining pearls daily. Second of all, their whole life is based on the quest for pearls. They're pearl merchants. Everything, everything they do or every day is disciplined around finding pearls. And this merchant found a pearl of such great value, such perfect proportions, that he was willing to sell everything he had in order to acquire it. Guess who the pearl is? You. Again, the object of the story is you. The kingdom of God is like the field and the pearl merchant. Jesus came and found such beauty, such perfection in you, that he gave it all 